We're in Mark chapter 14, the end of the chapter. And sorry, I just have my own Bible, so, well, I'll... 1,012. The strangest thing, my own Bible's font keeps getting smaller all the time, so 1,012. Nate's laughing at least, okay. <laughs> 1,012, Jesus before the council, and then Peter denies Jesus. You can think of this a couple ways of a, a, a trial and denial, or a true and false witness. Um, in a sense, what we're seeing here is uh, the playing out of what Jesus warns his disciples in Mark chapter 13. Do you guys remember one of the things he warned his disciples earlier? Uh, don't worry about what you'll say when you're drugged before councils and beaten in synagogues and when you stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Okay, so we see Christ bearing witness before the council. We see Peter unfortunately failing. Let me read uh, this section as a whole beginning at verse 43. Nope, uh, sorry, beginning at verse 53 through the end of the chapter. Now let's discuss it together. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garment and said, What robe is for his blasphemy? What is he walking down the And some began to spit on him and cover his face, strike and prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, uh, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word. Be God. Okay, Mark begins by setting the scene. 
in verses 53 and 54. And who are the two characters who are introduced and indeed the only two named characters in these episodes? Jesus, I heard someone say. Jesus and Peter. Now, this isn't quite a sandwich like Mark does elsewhere where he tells half the story and then some, another story and then, an, and then back to the first story. Um, I always say this wrong. Is the joint Mortar and Tennyson? Mortison and Tennyson? Okay, Mortis and Tennyson. I always get it mixed up in my head. Uh, it's a bit like that kind of a joint that he introduces both Jesus and Peter then he follows Jesus' story one way, Peter's story the other. So they're, inner, they're locked together. Where is Jesus as uh, Mark begins this episode in the story? Yeah, he's before the Sanhedrin. Uh, he's in court in the sense that the judicial body is assembled. And yet he's not in the council chambers. Uh, he's actually at the high priest's house. Where's Peter at? He's in the courtyard. He's at a distance. Yeah, so there's, uh, uh, e even there of where they're at, it is in court, and yet it's not in the uh, courtroom. Starts to hint at some of what's going on here. There's an ironic rhetoric to this entire trial account. Christ is accused of blasphemy, yet he's the one who's speaking the truth. Uh, the high priest says more than he knows. Okay, well, let's track first Jesus' trial and then Peter's denial. Verse 55 tells us the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Uh, the whole council, or it's the, in Greek it's the word Sanhedrin, uh, the assembly, the Sanhedrin or council is... 71 leading rulers in Jerusalem that were tasked with keeping the Jewish law, and they sort of served as an intermediary between the Jewish people and the Romans. So they were kind of a buffer in between. They probably didn't have the power to issue capital punishment themselves, uh, but they could hear court cases. They usually met in an official chamber beside the temple, called the Chamber Hewn of Stone. Uh, and yet instead, they're meeting at the high priest villa. And the rooster apparently crows in Palestine for the first time sometime around 12.30 and the second time 1.30. I'm not sure who went out and clocked when roosters crow, but uh, you know this is the middle of the night, not during usual hours for a court. Um, so... It, it, it's, it does say the whole Sanhedrin, but it's not obvious that that means all 71 are assembled together at the high priest's house. Apparently, at least 23 had to be together if they were going to condemn someone. Um, so at least 23. And it, here's where we have to fill in some details to kind of make sense of what's happening. They're trying to get witnesses. They want it to be above board. And my sense is that you have a smaller subgroup that's plotting against Jesus, and they want to convince the whole majority. And then, as we see, Peter and others are in the courtyard. So what's happening is going to be publicly reported, and so it's important that they have witnesses. And yet, what do they begin with? They begin with the sentence that they want, and then work backwards from there. 
Okay, so it's no presumption of innocence, uh, uh, nothing like that, but rather they're saying we want a death sentence. We want to put him to death, so let's try and find a charge that will stick, so let's find some witnesses that can get him in trouble. So they're seeking testimony. The word testimony and, and, and false witness in the next verse, it's the same word. Uh, and this is actually what we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, not bearing false witness. Uh, it's the same uh, uh, terminology that's used in the Greek translation as the ninth commandment. And really this whole passage is reflecting on true and false witness. Uh, so they're looking for, for witnesses. They're looking for testimony. It's a key term used seven times, I think, in these next few verses here. Uh, uh, but these witnesses disagree among themselves. The Old Testament law to uh, uh, declare someone guilty, and especially in a capital case, you had to have at least two witnesses that agreed. And so if the witnesses keep coming forward and saying stories that don't fit together, you can't really claim that you're justly uh, prosecuting someone. Some stood up and bore false witness against him. And so Mark's telling us up front, it is a false witness. We've heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not with hands. Uh, it's interesting, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all include a charge along these lines. Um, in Mark's gospel, we haven't heard Jesus actually say anything quite like that. In uh, chapter 13, remember, he said that the temple will be destroyed. But that's predicting divine judgment on the temple. It's not saying, I'm going to destroy it. Mark, though, sharpens the contrast here by adding in this little phrase. Um, oh, uh, in John, Jesus says this early on in the Gospel of John, and he, uh, he makes it clear that he's talking about his body being the temple. Uh, Mark picks up that same theme as John, or, or reflects on that same theme, by adding in the phrase, uh, the temple that's made with hands, the temple that's not made with hands. And so those uh, 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 words are helping us as readers to understand what's happening here, what's actually being said. Notice he says, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I will build another. Where else have we heard reference to three days in Mark's gospel? I think that's in Matthew, actually, yeah. Uh, yeah, but that certainly would be the same idea of three days. The same sign pointing to the same thing. I don't mean to send you guys too far searching through. Uh, when they're on the way to Jerusalem, three times he predicts that he's going to be handed over to the chief priests, elders, scribes, be put to death. And in each of those three occasions, in 831, 931, 1034, he says, and in three days will rise again. So Mark's uh, phrasing it in a way that's drawing out this contrast. Uh, the human temple will be destroyed and rep or replaced, we should say, with another temple. The contrast between a temple made with human hands, a temple not made with human hands, between the earthly temple, Christ himself. And yet, verse 59 tells us, even about this, their testimony doesn't agree. Well, we talked about this even this morning, of um, uh, 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 trying to catch people in perjury when you can't get anything else to stick. That's the, uh, in Sunday school we talked about this. Sorry if you weren't in our 
adult Sunday school. Um, uh, the high priest tries this tact. He stands up in the midst and asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Maybe Jesus will say something that's incriminating uh, if he can get Jesus to speak. And yet Jesus doesn't answer. He remains silent. I think the way Mark phrases this, we can't help but remember Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Remember, this is happening the night of Passover. Like a lamb before the slaughter, he opens not his mouth. So then the chief priest himself asserts, you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, are you not? Uh, it's, it's a statement with a question mark at the end in Greek um, that he's, he's asserting it, and if Jesus just nods his head, well, then I can catch him in something. This is, uh, this is what I'm talking about, about Mark's ironic rhetoric, is the high priest doesn't realize that he's giving a true testimony here. Christ is indeed, or Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed. Now at last, in a sense, uh, this is this climactic moment of revelation in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, when people have said things like this about Jesus before, he said, don't tell others, don't spread word abroad yet, uh, uh, my time has not yet come, those sorts of things. Now, when the high priest stands up and by virtue of his office, uses his authority to compel Christ to testify, Christ says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Um, in in uh, narrative theory, you have different kinds of narrative tension that's uh, in different ways. One kind of narrative tension is who knows what and when in a story, and so the moment of revelation is, is sort of the denouement of the story. Well, there's, more, uh, uh, there's a, a greater climax coming in this story with Christ's death and resurrection. And yet at this level of knowing Christ's identity, this is sort of the climax of the gospel, that he straightforwardly, in a very public setting, said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That response is really an amalgamation of three Old Testament passages. Uh, the beginning, I am, from Exodus 3, when Moses asks God's name, what does God respond? I am who I am. I am. And then he says his name, Yahweh. Well, it's uh, uh, Greek, as in maybe Spanish, for example, uh, the subject is included in the verb. And so he could have just said the verb, I am, uh, uh, I me, but instead he adds on the pronoun before it, ego, I me, this emphatic form uh, that was used in Exodus 3. Then Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, you are seated at my right hand. And then Daniel 7, uh, verse 13, the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. So Christ draws together these parts from uh, Exodus 3, Psalm 110, Daniel 7, and puts them together in his response. So his response really is just saying, look, all of Scripture 
points to me. This is who I am. When he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, I don't think the sense is that he's trying to tell the high priest, in your lifetime you're going to see me return, but rather, certainly, I will be publicly vindicated. That begins at Christ's resurrection and culminates in his return. Well, at that, the high priest tears his garments. And he says, you've heard it. What do we even need witnesses for at this point? Do away with them. You've heard his blasphemy. Again, there's the irony because Jesus is speaking the truth. Indeed, you wonder what even is the blasphemy. As far as we can tell, it was not blasphemous to claim to be the Messiah. Christ seems, uh, uh, the high priest understands Christ to be claiming to be divine. More than just a Messiah, but a divine Messiah. God himself. And yet Christ is not blaspheming. The high priest, by saying this, is the one who's blaspheming. Uh, and later, when, um, when Christ is crucified and the passerbys, I think this is in verse uh, 29, who passed by derided him, it's literally the same word. When they passed by, they blasphemed him. Well, the blasphemy is to speak wrongly about God. And so on the cross, Mark's making it clear, they are mocking God himself in Christ on the cross. And so they all condemn him as deserving death. Oh, sorry, some of that was supposed to be discussion questions. I'm sorry, guys. Getting carried away. Then in verse 65, they spit on him, they cover his face and strike him and say, prophesy. You know, if you're a prophet, tell us who's hitting you. Uh, And then the guards receive him also with blows. Okay, that's Christ's trial. We see him under the threat of violence and force, giving the good witness before the authorities, speaking the truth, remaining faithful, even at the cost of his own life. But then Mark contrasts it with Peter's denial. Yeah, Nate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hatred. Um, and I think the other part is when someone, uh, when someone sets themselves up as an authority or, or claims power, you knock them down, right, by showing supposedly that he has no power. And so it's, um, you know, you think you're the Messiah? Well, you know, here's, we'll make a mockery of you that you're no Messiah. Um, and yet, that's the whole irony of the whole thing. Is that here he is fulfilling his vocation as the Christ um, through this. Yeah. yeah. Spitting him, striking him. Uh, in, is it in John's gospel, it's better that one man die than the whole nation? Um, there, there seems to be a little bit more measured, you know, that's a sort of utilitarian decision made rather than the animosity you see in some of the other gospels. And and I think that those are probably all true, that if you have this group of 71, you probably have mixed motives going on uh, in that. Okay, so while that's happening, Peter is below in the courtyard trying to overhear what's happening. Uh, he does follow Jesus. So Mark says they all left him and fled. And yet, you know, Peter kind of flees to a distance and then is following along. 
he's uh, there, and yet, uh, unfortunately, Mark, you know, uh, he shows Peter up um, as really just uh, the stark contrast to Christ. Christ is faithful in his witness, even in the face of violence. Peter uh, is, is unmanned by a servant girl, uh, if, if that's the right way to put it. Um, uh, we see his cowardice as this servant girl asks him questions. Uh, when we went through 1 Peter, I threw out the, using this kind of uh, series of episodes as a way to think about how we relate to the world, and I, I think that's worth returning to again. Uh, Mark doesn't name Peter as the one with the sword in the garden, but assuming the Gospels uh, are all true, you know, Peter's tried the sword. Okay, let's fight the guards. No, that's not the way. Now Peter is here in the courtyard trying to blend in. Like, I can just be an undercover Christ follower and no one needs to know and it doesn't need to cause any friction with the crowd. Well, that's not going to work out either. Uh, from 1 Peter, I, I tri- traced it through to at the, after the resurrection, they're all in a locked room. Okay, if we can't fight the world and we can't blend in with the world, let's just withdraw and lock ourselves away. Well, that's not right either. Uh, Peter really only gets it right on the day of Pentecost when filled with the Holy Spirit, he boldly testifies to the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, here we're seeing him try a wrong strategy, trying to fit in. He's warming himself around the fire. She comes and says, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it. I neither know nor understand what you mean. Not just know you're wrong, but I have no clue what you're even talking about. What, you know, what guy? What are you talking about? Well, think it through. I mean, we're in the middle of the night in the courtyard of the high priest. The only reason people are there at the high priest's house is because Jesus is on trial. And he's like, no, I just happen to be hanging out here for some reason in the middle of the night with this crowd. It's, it doesn't even make sense, his excuse. And so he, after denying it, he kind of goes to a different position in the courtyard over by the gateway, uh, ready to run if he needs to. And Mark... Uh, uh, has it uh, a little bit different than the other Gospels, not um, in contradiction, but Mark has the first crowing of the rooster here. He's reminding us, it's a bit, you know, um, uh, Christmas carol, the tolling of the bells, that, okay, uh, uh, and, and as readers, especially if you can put yourself in the position of a first-time reader, Peter, don't do it, don't keep denying Christ, there's the rooster. And yet, the servant girl saw him, and she's pointing him out to someone else that happens to be there in the courtyard and saying, that guy over there, I think he's one of them. Uh, but again, Peter denies it. He overhears her conversation. He says, no, 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 you're totally wrong. And it's interesting. After a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter. So it's like the servant girl suggested, and then they're kind of watching him or something. Somehow, uh, uh, Matthew says it's his accent gives him away, but somehow they're picking out, certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. And the way Mark phrases it, verse 71 to 72 he begins to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And it's as if his, his very vow is interrupted. Immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Uh, Luke has it that... that um, striking moment that as Peter denies Christ the third time, somehow, you know, Jesus is being moved from one room to another and they're able to see each other and they make eye contact in that, that moment. Uh, Mark doesn't quite tell it that way, but 
when he hears the rooster crow a second time, he remembers what Jesus has said. Okay, Peter has denied Christ three times. What does it take? Just like, well, you know, it's a moment of weakness, but I just need to have better self-esteem, and then I'll feel better about this, and, you know, maybe tomorrow things will be better. No, what Peter needs is to be broken down and weep, and then he's in a position to be restored. But it takes, it takes realizing his own lack of faithfulness, his own brokenness, his own need of a Messiah to be put in the position that finally he can be restored. Any other thoughts on these two episodes? I know it's, it's all part of a longer story uh, that, that we're breaking up over several weeks, but... Yeah, Dan. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think he believes Jesus thinks he's a Messiah and has spoken in a way that even elevates himself. So they use similar language of blasphemy back in chapter 2. Not the high priest, but some of the um, representatives. When Jesus forgives sin, they say that's blasphemy. He's equating himself with God. So they seem to think Jesus is a messianic figure. Okay, we've had other messiahs, so-called messiahs. They kind of rise up, and it's a flash in the pan, and then they're gone, and we forget about them. Uh, this one also, though, seems to be making claims to divinity, and that seems to set him apart from the others in a way that's... Uh, well, that, that mixed with the fact that the crowds are going after him. Those two things together um, seem to be the reason why the high priest is taking aim at Jesus as opposed to other messiahs, you know, so-called messiahs that he has not, uh, the priests haven't tried to fight actively against. Okay, good question. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think, and the temple, okay, their offices are in the temple, their authority is located in the temple. If Christ is somehow replacing the temple, that's a threat to their own role in things. Um, and I think this is a perennial temptation even to anyone uh, who's part of the people of God that um, maybe you've seen in the news the last two weeks or so that at Asbury College there's some kind of a spiritual renewal happening. Well, you can look at that and you can say, well, you know, those Wesleyans, what do they know and why, you know, why, you know, why is God doing something over there and not in our group? You know, that, that, it's a natural inclination to play insiders and outsiders. And so I think the priest not only is it challenging his own position in society and so it's costly to him, uh, but, yeah, it's kind of, okay, why is this, you know, it's coming from Galilee, it's all these kind of uh, hillbillies off in the bushes, uh, well, you know what, if, if God's really going to do something, he's going to do it here in the city with the movers and shakers, that kind of a, yeah, so I, I think there's a perennial temptation there to not um, write off God's movement because it's not in the framework that we want it to be in or the place that we think it's going to happen. 
Yeah, Dan. All right, John, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and sorry to not make that, uh, I should have linked that together, is earlier, um, and, and then kind of drawing in some of the other gospel accounts, um, like after he feeds, I think, the 4,000, they want to make him king, and he slips away. Uh, or he's, he, he doesn't want people to, he doesn't want to be publicly identified as Messiah amongst the crowds if they're going to use him as part of their own schemes, their own power structures, their own plans. Now, He's publicly revealing himself when crucifixion is imminent. He's saying, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And this is what my vocation, my calling as the Messiah, the Son of God, looks like. It looks like dying on a cross for my own. Um, so at that point, there's no way to twist it and use it for your own agenda. It's, it's going to play out. Yeah. Yeah, good comment, John. Yeah, Austin? Yeah, um, the Sanhedrin's happy with the compromise that they currently have. And in John's gospel, certainly that's the logic behind it. It's better that one man die than that the whole nation get destroyed. So certainly in John's gospel, um, that's the reasoning going on there, at least on the part of some in the Sanhedrin. Um, I think you have multiple motives probably. In. Yeah, uh, Dion. Yeah. 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 So there's a rejection, and there, uh, and with with uh, Pilate that Nate's going to teach on next week, you have the same dynamic of who's really on trial, um, uh, and John John's gospel actually intentionally is ambiguous. John also says he sat eat in a way that kind of makes it seem like obviously it's Pilate who's sitting, if you're thinking in, in what actually happened, obviously it's Pilate who sat down, but John narrates it in a way that you kind of pause for a second and you ask, wait, who's sitting down to judge who? Uh, you know, who's really on trial here? Um, yeah, uh, certainly that's an, an element of this. And then drawing in the contrast Mark wants to with, with Peter, it's this question of, okay, Peter, Judas is, okay, he's kind of maybe the worst of the 12. Peter's the best of the 12, and yet even Peter doesn't have the faithfulness uh, to his calling that Christ displays. And so this contrast of what does it look like for disciples? Okay, even disciples ultimately need Christ's faithfulness to them uh, to sustain them. Well, let's turn to our time of prayer, and then we can continue uh, discussing